Julian Savalescu. The topic we're going to focus on is moral enhancement. Well, there is a problem that I think many people don't realise, and, and in many ways we are unfit for the world that we live in. Now, there are two problems. One stems from our nature and the second stems from the sort of world that we inhabit today. Well, let's start with the nature. What's wrong with our nature? Well, although we are very sophisticated and we have, you know, hugely elaborate poetry and films and so on, we are basically, in terms of our biology and our psychology, the same as our hunter-gatherer ancestors. We haven't changed very much. Now, what was, what was it like to be a hunter-gatherer? Well, human beings lived in groups of about 150. They had five close family members, 15 uh, broader uh, close group. 50 people that they cooperated with, and a, and a larger group of 150. They weren't able to affect the world very much, so they were biased towards the near future and, and things close to them. They could harm each other, but they couldn't benefit each other because it was very difficult to affect the world. They cooperated, but only with people that they knew and that they could see. Uh, they tended to free ride. They were distrustful of our group members because those our group members would try to exploit them or competed for resources. They, in fact, tended to kill our group members and were, were racist and, and xenophobic. They were more concerned with the consequences of their actions than what happened when they failed to do things. So they were essentially set up in a certain sort of way. They were altruistic, but, but their altruism was limited to, to within close members of the group. So that's our set of dispositions, the, the sorts of tendencies we have. And in fact, we developed moral norms in order to facilitate the survival of our group. What were those moral norms? Essentially, they were elaborations of the so-called tit-for-tat strategy, that you cooperated with people within your group provided they cooperated uh, with you, and you punished transgressions of, of cooperation. But we tended to require that people didn't harm each other because it was easy to harm, but we didn't require them to benefit each other. And we, we had a so-called acts-omissions distinction. We thought we were responsible for the consequences of our acts, but not for the foreseeable consequences of omissions. So we had a, a limited set of moral dispositions and a limited morality. So what you're saying is that Human beings developed in the Pleistocene when that was the major time when evolution for human beings occurred, and now we're stuck with these tendencies to behave in particular ways. Yeah, that's correct. We, we have a set of dispositions, which we can overcome, but, but are the baseline, the, the ways in which the human animal tends to morally behave. Now, what's the kind of world that we live in today? It's not the African savannah. Over the last thousand years, our societies have, have rapidly developed, but in the last hundred years, and in particular the last 50 years, a tech, a technology has gone through the roof in terms of its power and its capacities, and that's just continuing to increase. All technologies obey Moore's law of doubling every couple of years, genetic technology, you know, biotechnology, nanotechnology. All of these technologies are, are radically increasing. So first of all, our technology is much more powerful. We can affect the world. So around the middle of last century, we even acquired the capacity to destroy the world um, through nuclear holocaust. But only a handful of people could do that. But today, floating around the former Soviet Union, there's enough fissile material to, to create about 20,000 atomic bombs. Um, but the, the situation is even worse than that in terms of risks because we're now acquiring the power to construct biological weapons, not just in, in, in military facilities, but in the backyard by obtaining components through the internet. We could create very soon 
smallpox artificially. We've already done this with polio and we could create more lethal strains than ever existed. So first of all, we have radically increased powers, including the power to harm ourselves. The second feature of mod the modern world is that it's, it's global. And the kinds of problems that we have, like global poverty or climate change, are global problems. They're not problems that affect a group of 150 people that they can have any effect on. So whereas we traditionally dealt with these kinds of collective action problems where we had to cooperate to deal with the problem in, in a certain kind of way. So the, the, the tragedy of the commons, the, the, the traditional problem of where you had a limited resource and a number of people competing for it, was traditionally dealt with by observation. You had a small group of farmers with an area of pasture land. Each could observe each other. They had a reason to trust each other. They had a reason to cooperate. Free riders could be detected. Okay, so you could enforce cooperation when it comes to a small group of 150. When it comes to climate change, that problem is created by tens of millions of people who are anonymous to each other, operating at vast distances, who don't trust each other, who don't care about each other, and whose contribution to the problem is negligible. So we're not set up in terms of our psychology, our psychological dispositions to deal with that kind of problem. Global poverty is something we could easily solve today. Why don't we solve it? Well, first of all, we believe that we're not responsible for, for failing to solve it. We don't, we don't believe that we caused it. And secondly, we're selfish. When Americans were surveyed after the Kyoto um, meeting, 50% of them said that they would, would pay $50 a month to conform to the Kyoto Protocol. Only 10% said they would spend $100. So people don't want to spend money solving these problems. The average American values an American life at, at 2,000 times that of a non-American life. Are people likely to voluntarily cooperate to deal with problems like global poverty and climate change? Very difficult. That's why we see the Copenhagen fail. That's why we see you know, a failure to deal with poverty and climate change. From what you're saying, the source of many of our problems in the world today is basically human psychology that we seem to be stuck with. We're not going to evolve rapidly in the next few years. For the first time in human history, you know, our fate is in our hands. You know, what causes climate change? People say CO2. What causes terrorism, militant Islam or Al-Qaeda? What causes global po poverty, unfair trade agreements? You know, what causes f nuclear disasters like Fukushima, you know, earthquakes or tsunamis? But in fact, all of those things, even the, the Fukushima disaster, are the result of choices. Choices that we make, that we have power over. So all of the great problems that we will face this century terrorism, global poverty and inequality, climate change, infectious disease, all of these problems will be the result of choices that we make. It's the, we, we have the power, but our dispositions to make the right choices are very limited. Does that mean there's no hope? Well, of course, there is hope. Uh, our, our fate is not determined. We do have a degree of freedom and we, we do have enormous capacities, enormous cognitive abilities and, and also enormous moral resources. But the challenge will be to, to identify the drivers to human behaviour and moral limitations and, and first of all, to, to respond scientifically and appropriately to those. So there's a lot of excitement about this proposal by Sunstein and Thaler called Nudge, where you try to take advantage of people's cognitive biases to, to get them to choose more beneficial or healthy uh, lifestyles. So you put a healthy cereal, you know, in front of the, you know, the kind of eye level of the shelf, or you you have an opt-out system of organ donation where the the standard is to to take organs, and you have to opt out of that. Now these strategies are are, are 
interesting and, and important, but they're not going to deal with the problems of, of, of the risks of, of bioterrorism and, and climate change and, and uh, global poverty. So we, we need to understand better what contributes to those problems and, and how we can affect them. So one of the big contributors is, is actually liberal democracy. What could be wrong with that? Although it has many advantages, and, it, and, it's, and, and Fukuyama once described it as the end of history, I don't think it is the end of history, at least in its current form. So one of the features of liberal democracy is, is liberal neutrality, a neutrality to different values, and a reluctance to, to educate or promote a certain set of values. It's tolerance of, of minorities, multiculturalism, and the, allowance, the allowing of many different cultures and, and ways of living to flourish. But of course, that today risks allowing minorities, oppressed minorities, fanatical minorities to access enormously powerful, destructive technology. So we, we, we first of all, I think, need to question the idea that we shouldn't be promoting certain sorts of values in our community, like, uh, like tolerance, like commitment to equality, like tolerance of difference, empathy with other people, commitment to aiding and benefiting as well as not harming, these sorts of values and norms. Secondly, we have very strong attachments as a part of, of liberal democracy to privacy. Now, it may well be that we need greater surveillance to, 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 to detect the potential for terrorism or the misuse by fanatics or ideologues of this enormously powerful technology. And, and lastly, we need to go beyond just tailoring policies in, in the style of nudge to people's limitations. We, we, we may even have to look at how we could, we could more radically enhance moral education, not just by promoting values at an early stage, but by enhancing the, the acceptance and the uptake of, of certain kinds of values that, that are necessarily necessary to deal with the problems, including the, the threat to the very existence of humanity. So, for example, um, we need to look at how we could use biology to, to augment moral behaviour or to augment moral um, learning. How could we use biology to affect morality? It doesn't seem obvious that, that we could use biological techniques to make people morally better people? Well, I think it's important to recognise that our, our dispositions, that the sort of tendencies we have to, to behave, are, are not purely socially ingrained, although you know, there is an important social effect, but are, are also arise out of our basic biology. So our sense of fairness. If you look at the, the acceptance of, of various offers, there's much closer correlation in what identical twins will accept as a fair offer, a fair distribution, when those distributions are unequal, than there is between non-identical twins or between strangers. So how, what we judge as a, as a fair distribution or, or uh, when the distribution is unequal is, is, is it's significant part bi biological. Our tendencies towards aggression and empathy are uh, in part biological. So it's, it's obvious to people that, that women are, are less physically violent although they can be more, more emotionally violent or express um, uh, violent tendencies in, in non-physical ways. But it's clear that they are, uh, in general, more empathetic and understand other people's emotions. So those things are, are in part biological. We've also seen recently the capacity of um, various forms of science to scientific interventions to, to influence moral behaviour. One of the most striking examples, um, the use of, of commonly employed drugs can influence people's moral dispositions. So, for example, um, this, the so-called antidepressants, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac, 
um, increase cooperation between people, between groups. Um, they also reduce aggression. Those are moral effects. Um, oxytocin is a hormone and a neurotransmitter in the brain um, whose release is, is, is caused by breastfeeding. But drugs also cause its release, like the oral contraceptive pill and, and steroids used in the treatment of asthma. Oxytocin promotes trust within groups, um, but also reduces trust of our group members. These are moral effects. So very widely used drugs. Propranolol is a, is a drug that was used for, is still used for high blood pressure and anxiety, tremor. Uh, that drug affects both memory of traumatic events. It reduces the laying down of um, traumatic events and the, the uh, US military uses that. Um, but it also affects the, the biasing of, of, of people to, to other people and, and the sorts of decisions that they make. I can see no problem for a liberal in allowing adults to make choices about pharmaceutical products they use, that they want to take these drugs to morally enhance themselves. But for this to be effective, surely you're going to need to be authoritarian. You're going to have to say, look, it's not just a matter of your choice. Anybody should be taking this drug if it genuinely does produce better effects. Otherwise, you're going to be left with a number of rogue unenhanced people who have the potential to destroy everything. Well, I mean, exactly how we use our knowledge of biology is, is the big question to be, to be answered. Uh, at this point, I'm merely sketching the prospect that our understanding of, of, of our basic dis dispositions and the capacity to influence them could be used to address these problems. But as you say, the people who most need it may be the least likely to, to take any form of moral enhancement. Um, but we do, of course, enforce certain things um, on children, such as education. And one of the claims that, that you know, I've been making is that we also need to force a certain kind of moral education on children. Um, but if it turns out that certain drugs or other interventions augment moral education, for example, increase empathy uh, or increase our concern for inequality, then I think it's a real question whether those should be used to augment our, our edu education practices. So to give you an example of what might be possible, here in Oxford, Roy Cohen, Kadosh and colleagues have, have used a, a form of external brain stimulation just by passing a, a light electrical current over a certain area of the brain called transcranial direct current stimulation to augment learning of numbers, numeracy, in children who have problems with numeracy. But this technique can be used to, to stimulate the, the learning of, of, of any skills. So it can also be used to improve the learning of motor skills. You have to stimulate a different area of the brain. But in, in principle, it, it seems that this sort of thing could be used to, to enhance moral learning if you, if you got the, the configuration right. Now, you know, it sounds crazy having children with little helmets on, you know, learning maths better or learning to be better people. But what seems crazy today may, may be possible and, and may be, in fact, urgently necessary in, in the near future. I think a lot of people listening to this will feel actually the vision of children sitting with these helmets on their heads learning to be morally better people is something out of 1984 or one of these other dystopian novels. It's not an attractive prospect and it doesn't even seem to have much to do with morality. It looks like pre-programming. For many people, morality is about free choice, not about structuring the world so you're a kind of automaton. Well, you, you, could, you could certainly um, remove freedom and you could create automatons, if you like. 
transcranial magnetic stimulation has, has been used to to influence what people choose without their knowledge so that and they actually believe they've freely chosen that option that would be removing freedom if, if I put such a thing on 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 your head and, and made you choose to beha- behave better that would be removing your autonomy and your freedom but of course there are many ways in which this could increase freedom so for example and autonomy we, we think that people people are acting autonomously not just when they make choices but when they act on their values but in many cases we 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 lack the self-control we lack the ability to control our impulses to do what we actually believe we should do now drugs which improve impulse control so for example ritalin and adderall in, in children with with attention deficit disorder are effectively moral enhancers they not they only they also reduce the violence that those sorts of people commit so there are various ways in which you could improve autonomy and freedom so improving cognitive abilities like like memory and understanding of of complex probabilities and options that would improve people's evaluative powers the ability to decide which option is best improving empathy would enhance people's capacity to to evaluate the true nature of options that that would be enhancing freedom and autonomy and the simplest way to think about it is this think of the most virtuous people the kind of morally best people in the world do we think that they're not acting freely in making those moral choices insofar as they have any freedom it seems that we could have we could be equally free if we behaved as virtuously and as as morally appropriately as they do so improving moral behavior is not necessarily a threat to freedom and in many cases can be an expression of autonomy Many of the worst regimes in history have had at their core some kind of moral vision which they've then imposed on other people. It seems that's the same structure as what you're proposing. Well, of course, it is true of any powerful technology or or strategy that it can be used for both good and bad. And it's certainly true that that many of the world's worst atrocities have been committed in the name of, of some kind of moral vision, a bad moral vision but a a sort of an asserted moral vision nonetheless. That's certainly a a risk, but the the context of this is that we live in a time that's utterly different to any other time, and the risks that we face today are utterly different to the risks that humanity has ever faced. So the problem is much greater. And the challenge will be to, to use the right kind of moral vision to address that problem. Now, there are two ways of, of thinking about this. The first way is to sort of accept that liberal democracy as we know it is the best way of dealing with these problems and just let events run their course. The risk of that strategy is is annihilation or very significant global collective action problems that, that threaten huge numbers of people. The other vision is to try to set a set of moral values that we can defend and agree upon that we think are worth fighting for. Now, I think we've reached that stage where we can say, is commitment to equality, is tolerance of difference, are these sorts of values really going to lead to an, to an atrocity? In fact, I believe they're, they're less likely to lead to atrocities than, than simply allowing people to, to pick and choose their own values. So I think there's a crisis for multiculturalism and relativism that is much greater than people realise today. And I, I think we will just have to face a choice and we will have to go forward knowing the risks. Um, but I think we do need good philosophy and good normative ethics to try to articulate the sorts of values that should, should guide our future. And I don't think our, our future can any longer be, be normatively rudderless. As you've painted the world, 
it doesn't take many individuals to produce a horrific end result as things stand. So no matter how morally good the majority are, if there's some bad apple in the barrel, that may be sufficient to destroy humanity as we know it. I mean, one individual with the with access to bioterrorism could cause immense damage. Well, it's true. Um, but so is the argument that if we can't entirely eliminate the risk, we, we shouldn't try to reduce it. I think that's a that's a, just a misunderstanding of probability. I mean, we need to we need to to reduce the risks as as much as we can, as ethically as we can. We may never eliminate the risks, but at, at the moment, I think the risks are much higher than people realise. And, and there are things that we could do. We could regulate the access to, to the sorts of technology that can construct bioweapons. Um, we could restrict liberties in certain ways. Now, we should make those calculations about whether those liberty restrictions are worth it or not. But at the moment, I think we've been biased by our history that won't inform the future. Many religious people will just object that you shouldn't tamper with God's creation, the idea that you enhance morality. If we're made in the image of God, we already have all the potential we need to be morally good people. Well, of course, they may assert that. But again, when you look at the reality, inequality is is a, a fundamental fact of biology evolution and God, if, if he created us, had no mind to equality and disposition. Some people are, are smarter, some people are less smart, some people are more empathetic, some people are less empathetic, some people are more aggressive, some people are less aggressive. There, you know, there is profound inequality, which today has profound significances, not only in terms of how well those people's lives go, but, but the risks that people pose uh, in the world in which we live. And unless you think that the current distribution of characteristics and abilities and disabilities and, and various gifts and, and talents is, is exactly right, that diversity is exactly what the world needs and people need, then unless you think that, you should try to influence what nature or God gives us in a way that promotes the well-being of people and, and also the security and stability and, and the justice of the world. Do you really think technologies exist now that could make a predictably good difference to the future? I don't think we've looked at that question seriously enough. And I think the biggest challenge this century, as I've said, is human behaviour. We need a set of values to, to decide you know, what, we, what kind of world and what kind of people we want or we need or we should realise. And we need a science to, to help us to realize that not just in in crude nudge ways but in in more in more fundamental ways and you know i think we've made great progresses in the treatment of disease but as i've said the challenges this century will be the result of our choices and cognitive science particularly neuroscience will be fundamental to understanding the nature of the, the human animal the nature of our dispositions and limitations the nature of our strength and, and how to harness those to realize what we decide are the kinds of values that are important to us. Julian Savlescu, thank you very much. My pleasure.